0: And we're back. Welcome back to Line Noise, a podcast about electronic music. I'm Philip Sherburn.
1: And I'm Ben Cardew. And it has indeed been a while, uh, but we have not been idle, have we? Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. In fact, uh, you have been here and there and uh, went to London to interview Brian Eno. I did. I did indeed. Uh, how excited were you? Yeah, I was, I, was, I was bowled over. I don't think
0: I ever thought that I would actually get to... To interview Brian Eno, so the idea that I was going to um, going to to meet up with him in his studio in in London was kind of a dream. Funny thing, I was actually supposed to interview him by phone back in January when I was still in Portland, Oregon, visiting family, and it got um, it, it was the same day that he had an interview, another interview um, with another journalist, and that interview. It, Possibly, I yes, mind. that interview. <laughs> and at, at like five minutes till my call time, I, I got a, an email from the publicist saying, oh, wait, you know, we, we're just a little bit delayed. Can you hold on, please? Uh, yeah, no problem. And then 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, I get another email from her saying, um, yeah, that interview is a disaster. <laughs> I... <laughs> Brian is really annoyed. And we're going to have to postpone this because he's definitely not in like, the state of mind to do another interview today and so fortunately that is what got me eventually to london since i was back in europe and it was just easier to go to london than than call him so which
1: is far better far better um who were you more uh nervous about interviewing or excited maybe apex twin or brian eno
0: definitely apex twin i mean no offense to brian eno but you know brian eno is not um he's not a cypher in the same way that that apex twin is
1: yeah so I wanted to ask about the interview. You, you, you said I was rereading it this morning. Um, you said he's a natural performer, uh, and that extends to the role he plays as an interviewee. What, what role does he play?
0: Well, I, I think when I say kind of performer, and there, there were a number of people in the studio. He's, he's got a studio in Notting Hill neighborhood. Um, he's been there for I think twenty-two years. Um. When I got there, he I, I didn't entirely ascertain who everybody was, but there was sort of a colleague of his, a co-worker, a peer. Um, his publicist got there a little bit later on. I could swear there were some other people as well. Um, and he's, you know, he's just an, he's, he's a very charismatic person, and he kind of radiates energy and charisma. And, you know, the detail I had in the story was that his he claimed his studio was a mess, which it... It wasn't, but you know, there was a, there was a party scheduled for that night. He had a table set up, you know, with kind of wine and, and stuff. And he was sort of, Oh my, you know, this place is a disaster. I've got a party tonight, whatever I'm, I'm going to do. It's, you know, and I think he swore in, he threw in some profanity for, you know, it's, it's a fucking mess, you know, it's just for, for effect. Um uh, yeah, it was some, something like, mean, where's the housekeeper? I'm shitting bricks here, you know. He's just, he's he's like that, you know, he's just a
1: performer in a, in a good way, you know, he's he's the center of attention. And certainly. did you go to the party? I did not go to the party, okay, no. Okay, fair enough. I was going to say one thing that, that really struck me, and has always struck me about Eno, but came across in your interview, that he seems sort of genuinely interested in what other people have to say. Um, for example, when you were talking about playing Nerali and Reflection, the new album, at the same time, and they're—I think they're in the same key—and they mm-hmm. sort of were He sounded genuinely interested in what you had to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't take that as a sort of giving me lip service at all. I think he was really like, "Oh, that? No kidding. I'm going to have to check that out." Um, yeah, he's—I mean, he's—he's—he's he's, he's an idea person, you know. He—I mean, I, you went to the to the lecture he gave at Sonar. I did yes. last year as well, and I mean. You, that was the first time I'd ever seen him speak, but you you got that idea. I mean, he is, like, I in the piece I said something, he's sort of one of the closest things we have to a public intellectual in the electronic music scene at this point. I think he really relishes that role. He he works with and talks to a wide range of people, artists and scientists and researchers, and um, he, not in the interview, but he, he talked about working with, um, there was, like, a researcher working with um, LSD to treat depression, and this um, this recent, nothing to do with Eno, but this this psychologist or whatever has been doing these experiments for years, and it so happened that he played um, music for airports or other Eno you know, albums to his subjects while they were taking LSD, and so eventually he reached out to Eno to talk to him about the music, and I don't know if he wanted to commission new music or something like that, but. He, he works with, you know, he, he, does, he does things with people at NASA. He works with people at CERN. Um, Stephen Hawking invited him to, uh, to talk at some event, uh, like an astronomer's convention. Um, he's involved in a lot of different things that aren't just electronic music, and I think he brings that to bear on his, on his conversations.
1: Um, so the interview was about the new album, Reflection.
0: What do you think of it? Uh, I, th- I think it's really interesting. And when I'm in the right mood for it, I think it's really beautiful. It's, um, it's very atmospheric. It's, I mean, there are two, there are two ways to experience the album, um, as an album, which is, I think 53 minutes long or 58 minutes long, one of the two, um, which is, you know, you hit play and you listen to the whole thing and it's over and then you start it again and you hear the same thing every time, like any album, And then there's the app, which is uh, an iOS application. You can listen on your iPhone or your iPad. And it will be different every time. It is basically, uh, it's a set of sort of parameters. There's a set of musical elements, um, tones, that are kind of in commensurate cycles that run against each other and will never loop or they'll loop up. They'll, they'll come back around in like a million years. I mean, you're basically never going to hear the same thing the same way again. Um, supposedly it changes certain parameters change according to the hour of the day and even the season of the year. Although, I mean, I haven't listened to it enough to, to be able to tell you that, um, I tried listening on the plane, and it was a no go because you literally couldn't hear anything. I listened on the train on the Gatwick Express into London, and it was actually really—it was perfect. Um, it was, you know, very calming. Uh, it it is a very on the Gatwick it, Express. It is a very reflective piece of music. I mean, it's in the vein of music for airports. You know, it's it's very slow, it's very um, spare, color oriented. Um, the app has a, a visual aspect which is really my least favorite aspect of it which are these kind of squares and rectangles in different colors that the colors change I don't think that's particularly um, interesting and as a, a synesthetic experience to me it doesn't represent what the music sounds like really
1: so you've been listening on the app rather than to I, the... I listen
0: I listen to both right. um, and sometimes actually sometimes i would put on like in my hotel room in london to prepare i put on the album on my laptop and then the app on my phone and then i would get sort of i guess the experience sort of squared you know because right. you've got like it'll never repeat i mean you've got two different things and they're shifting and and changing and that's also what i did listening to um reflection and then neroli the reflection app and then neroli on the computer which turned out they were in the same key and and um i mean any, anybody who dj's ambient music i mean you know that if you find two ambient records that work together they're they're awesome and if you can just like extend them indefinitely all the better
1: but was it was it an accident with neroli or did you think actually the sounds very similar i'll put them together
0: I, you know i'm trying to remember now i think it was largely an accident i think it was just like i think i put it on and i was like wait this sounds very similar and then i kind of
1: keyed up the queued up the the phone and I was like,
0: oh, wow, these are strikingly
1: similar. (laughs) See, I'm really interested in the app because, as you say, it basically doesn't repeat. Um, And I think that's a fascinating concept. But at the same time, don't we like repetition in music? I mean, what I'm talking about, you know when you get a new album and maybe the first listen, it doesn't work, but like three listens down the line, it does. Or you listen to something electronic, it's all repetition. I, I think this is a really interesting concept. Like, is there enough to grasp onto, if something doesn't repeat, how are you gonna get friendly with it? How are you gonna grow to like it? Well, I'd be interested to talk to
0: like a jazz person about this because in the interview, Eno said that sort of recording was integral to the popularization of jazz and improvisation because it required repetition, it required hearing multiple times to really, to understand the beauty of it. You know, you hear a Coltrane solo once, it goes over your head. You hear it enough times and eventually it becomes um, meaningful, you know, yeah. in a way that looking at an abstract expressionist painting over and over and over again, you begin to identify patterns, um, even if it's purely aleatory. Um, and I think the with, with reflection, the app, there are few enough elements. In some ways, it kind of doesn't matter that it will never repeat because you... I think you could listen to it for a long time without ever figuring out that it's actually playing something marginally different than the album. There's only three or four elements to the whole thing. You know, think of it as sort of wind chimes. You know, there's like four tones kind of slowly cycling around each other. Um, There are no, at least while I've listened to the app, there have been no major moments of kind of discord or dissonance or very little jumps out at you as an aha moment. I mean, for the most part, it sounds like the album.
1: Do you think that more people are going to make things like this, that in 30 years' time we'll be looking back on this like we look back on you know music for airports as a really important moment in in music history, or do you think this is pretty much a one-off?
0: I mean, I, I don't think it's a one-off because obviously he's been doing this for years and I think he'll continue to do it, and I'm sure other people will. Will it become a dominant mode of listening? I'm skeptical there. I right. think it's kind of like quadraphonic sound in the 1960s. I, I think it's a nice... It's kind of a novelty. It's nice to have. Um, I mean, I think there's... Maybe you could draw parallels with the same questions that are being asked right now about AI and composing. You know, um, in 30 years' time, will pop songs be all written by AIs? I doubt it, just because of my own prejudices. Um, Time will tell, you know? But, I mean, it's like Autekr. They're kind of using AIs, but what makes it interesting is that what Autekr ultimately selects from you know what i mean like it's the
1: they hear it they think this is good you know so there's like that that editorial level
0: right right i mean or you know and maybe that's just kind of the the prejudice that we've developed according to the way we listen to music and distribute music i mean Autecker could could write a software patch and distribute it i feel like somebody did recently distribute a software patch maybe on the anomia label actually here in barcelona was it evil maybe barcelona-based artists that distributed the software patch that i think you can just install on your computer that will just generate music and and so it's the same you know it's the same idea generative music i think it's an idea that people will continue to work with but i don't see it becoming i don't see it supplanting the the album or the song as kind of a unit of composition anytime soon do you think
1: people are going to buy the app because it's expensive and it's purposefully expensive and actually i quite like that because he's basically saying this isn't a throwaway product this is actually worth something this is a million years of music you're getting it for um that's a bargain (laughs) (laughs) exactly Uh, i think it was originally 30 pounds i think maybe they 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 changed it do you think people are going to buy i mean that's i know it's cheap for what it is i know lots of work went into it but um, it still is expensive for an app. It's expensive for an album. Uh, yeah, I mean, a marks. lot of people
0: complained about that, or or at least remarked upon it. Um, I, I saw on Facebook on his page, you know, a lot of a lot of comments. Um, and we spoke about that in the interview. I think it may have gotten cut from the ultimate from the final edition, uh, the final publication. But um, they apparently brought, they actually had to change the price because. They priced it at thirty pounds, which put it at like thirty-eight dollars in America, which is which is pricey. Although also given the way like if you buy a double LP at 180 gram vinyl, that's gonna cost you thirty or forty bucks also. Of course, then you get, you know, the gatefold cover and all these things. It's a different sort of value proposition. But in some ways, like the price of music has become so arbitrary, you know, Mm. it's really become you can pay ten dollars a month. For Spotify and have access to a an enormous swath of the history of recorded music, you know, or you could pay $40 for a double LP. I don't know.
1: Like that, that you're that. never going to that never gonna listen to because you got a download code. Because you generally. got the download code, yeah. exactly.
0: Um, so, I mean, this was all very, you know, this kind of part of their thinking. Um, I guess because of Brexit and because of the fall of the pound, they ended up, Apple ended up raising. All app prices on UK apps by twenty five percent to compensate for the fall in the pound, and so all of a sudden that drove the price of Reflection, the app, to I think it was forty pounds, which which you know was suddenly like really expensive. It was like fifty bucks in dollars, and so they ended up lowering the price of the. They took the app. And Eno and, you know, was saying this happened at exactly the time that, like, it was starting to get a lot of press. And so it was the worst time in the world for them. So they took it off the market. They waited uh, a few days or a week or something. And then they reintroduced it at a lower price to make it kind of more accessible both in the U.K. and, and around the world. Because when they raised the price in the U.K., it triggered an automatic right. price range right. raise around the world. And I actually thought it was kind of interesting that as a – I mean, it's totally unintentional, but – you talk about like people like Kanye. He released his album on title and then was fiddling with it for weeks. No, like oh no, I'm going to take a verse off. Oh, I'm going to change. There was no longer a finished version yeah. of the album. And here you had this the same idea with the pricing of the app. It's like it was introduced into the market and then like market forces screwed with the price of the app. And so then you find the artist like kind of changing how it's. Priced, and then he ended up giving, uh, releasing a, 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 an album called Sisters, which were four ambient pieces, also generative pieces that were made using similar techniques as Reflection. And he gave that away as a free download to people that had bought the app originally, as kind of a you know as a as a thank you. I'm sorry that the price got so high, kind of thing.
1: I mean, I was looking at the App Store listing for it today, and it talks a little bit about that. Also, I was reading the the comments. And obviously, you know, you can't necessarily tell um, from the amount of comments how well something is done. But I think, if I'm not wrong, excuse me if I am, it had three comments, largely positive, but didn't suggest that loads of people buying it. But Mm -hmm. I I hope. Well, maybe I'm wrong. I I would love to
0: know he because I know the previous apps, Bloom, and I forget the other one. They were priced at you know three or four dollars, I think. And he in the interview he talked about there's a biological phenomenon and I forget. It's like, I'm going to get the names wrong, but it's like K strategies and R strategies or something like this. Don't send an angry email. If you're a bio (laughs) person, just know that I'm trying my best. Um, And one is like humans. They have very few offspring and they kind of shower their offspring with attention and um, nurturing And it's like they put all of this investment into, you know, very few offspring. And then there are others, like frogs, say, and they have thousands and thousands of offspring. And and essentially...
1: Let them die. And (laughs) and
0: they just throw them out into the wild. And most of them, or like turtles, you know, and most of them get eaten by predators. And a few of them squeak through. Um, And it's very inefficient, but that kind of inefficiency is built into it. And so he was comparing... His and I, and I think he was saying that basically. So when he did Bloom and it was three dollars, it was it was like the the tadpoles, right? It's like yeah. you put it out there, you know, people buy it or they don't or whatever, and you don't have to worry too much about it. And then this was the other one, which is this kind of like intensely nurtured product or offspring right. or whatever you want to call it. Um, it was an inexact metaphor, but but I don't know. Eno has this way of of you know using metaphors that that makes you believe at least while you're listening
1: i think my favorite bit of the whole interview the printed interview was the bit where he starts talking about cricket and i could just imagine you sitting there going oh i know cricket (laughs) what's he talking about (laughs) help i'm american i got no idea yeah that was really funny because i asked i I
0: think it was you know do you do you keep it because he always uses this gardening metaphor that classical music is like something and contemporary music is like gardening and i said oh well do you keep a garden and he this sort of self-deprecating, like, well, keep would be the <laughs> right word. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then it became the, the, that he was the same as when he was playing cricket at school and he thought he was, like, basically a hot shot. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he was And he was terrible.
1: <laughs> you talked in the interview that he um, brings you into the studio to show off the generative processes he used to, c- to create reflection. This made me very jealous. Mm-hmm. So you got Eno taking you into the studio, showing you how to make music. Tell us about it.
0: Well, so his studio was really, um, I I mean, I hope this doesn't sound like Kiss and Tell or anything. like. I mean, it was just, you know, yeah his studio was fascinating um, in that it was completely underwhelming. um, As a studio itself, what I remember was there was like one guitar, really nice looking guitar kind of leaning on a stand. Uh, He had a standing desk with a really big um, computer monitor. He had a MIDI controller. I don't remember what kind of controller it was, but it was like, you know, nothing special. There was no other hardware that I saw. Um, he seemed to be doing everything in the box. And then there was one shelf in the back of the room that was full of, like, discarded computer monitors, like the kind of, like, the plastic that starts yellowing when it gets a yeah. few years old.
1: Like old school computers.
0: Like old school computer monitors. Not, not monitors, like um, speakers, you know? Mm. computer Like the crappy ones that you used to get with your PC... You know, like gaming speakers. Yeah. and it was like, why does he have? I don't know. There were like four or five sets of yellowing. It was like a graveyard for, for old computer speakers. And I was, I was really curious about that. The speakers he had attached to his computer were like old school '70s wooden cabinet. They sounded great. They sounded mm. awesome. Um, yeah. So he, he, he fired up Logic, and basically he's running these. I, th- I think his partner Peter Chilvers. Who's, who's doing the app programming has designed these scripts in, I don't know how you do this, but these scripts in logic that are essentially randomization scripts. You can do something very similar in Ableton that basically say X percentage of the time. If, if like here's an arpeggiator um, X percentage of the time, raise the note by three cents X percentage of the time, mute the note X percentage of the time, do this other thing. Uh, and he's got all these these randomization scripts kind of running in parallel um, on fairly simple, you know, arpeggios, kind of drum uh, drum patterns. Uh, he's got some kind of sequences running out of sync with each other. so one's maybe an eleven step sequence and one's a thirteen step sequence. And then,, um, yeah, and then he he just sort of showed me that. And some of that was sort of underwhelming and then he flipped a switch and he had this battery of effects on it and all of a sudden it sounded really very Autekrian, it sounded like not at all like I expected from him, um, much more sort of beat oriented. Uh, Yeah, he he just kind of took me through a bunch of that stuff. He'd been, I think he had 4,400 odd tracks in his sort of demos playlist in iTunes. He had, I was trying to see how many he had from... This was in sometime in February, and so since the beginning of the year, he had I mean dozens. I think he's just kind of cranking stuff out. Um, and then the statistical guitar that I talked about was this. It's just an arpeggiator that that he runs. You know these randomizers. He throws these randomizers at, randomizers at it, and it ends up sounding kind of like a chicka chicka waka like chic waka kind of
1: yeah, yeah yeah exactly
0: like a chicken scratchy kind of guitar and when he gets the right kind of attacks on it and the right effects yeah it has this just this kind of very live wire feel this very loose this loose feel to it it's funny because i was listening back to there were a couple pieces that had this real slap bass kind of bass on it that he was super proud of and i was listening back the other day to another green world and there was some very slap bassy sort of bass lines on that. I don't know who played the. Do you know who played no, on, another no. Green World? And um, and I was like, wow, this is like you could really see the continuity for you know 40 years or whatever it's been. He's obsessed with this particular kind of sound. He's just getting it out of his out of logic now.
1: And he played you uh, one of the moments I really liked was he played you um an exclusive new track. And uh, then he went, that was not very good, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> uh, Percy Jones was your man uh, who played fretless bass on Another Green World. And who was on drums? Uh, Phil Collins. I was going yeah, to say Phil Collins. I was going to totally say Phil Collins. I was totally going to say Phil Collins, but I thought I would look stupid
0: <laughs> if I was wrong. Phil Collins. Nice
1: Phil, Phil Collins, yep. One, uh, another point that sort of came out in this, uh, again, another the, the the bits that I really liked was, was Brian Eno's view on ambient music. Um, which is basically that a lot of the ambient music that came out particularly I think my interpretation was sort of in the 90s when there was like a big boom in ambient music and ambient house and things like that um, had taken the sort of mellow bits rather than the sort of because that's what he did he likes things that are the kind of mellow but he was saying basically oh they, they, they took just that one bit that was quite interesting I kind of what, what is ambient music in 2017 because that that for me I've got to say I'm quite when I listen to ambientish things I listen to that kind of mellow mm-hmm. nice relaxing thing and and things that are more dark and atmospheric I can appreciate but honestly I don't put them on very much where I think you you do I do
0: and I consider it ambient as well but I I yeah I thought it was interesting he said Something to the effect of, if we're going to assume, and it's a big assumption, but I don't. I mean, I don't think Brian Eno invented ambient music. But let's say Brian Eno sort of codified ambient music. He discovered it, in a sense. He gave it a name, exactly. right? Yeah. He popularized ambient music. A lot of stuff kind of filters down from him, although some goes around him too. Um, you know, what would an ambient? And so he was saying that because his taste is to the mellow and the understated people following him making ambient music kind of in the tradition of Brian Eno kept up with that mellow understated vibe. And and he felt like that was a almost an accidental offshoot of his taste. Um, so I guess one question is what would ambient music that's not mellow, you know, what would that sound like? And I mean, you, there is stuff like, you know, um, Kevin drum, at what point does ambient music become noise, you know? Because noise can also be ambient, right? I mean, noise is environmental. Um, If the idea of ambient music is, as he said, um, it's essentially like you're entering a space um, that's not, it's not really linear necessarily, it's not composed. um, It's, he compared it to abstract expressionism. Um, to a field in which the eye isn't naturally directed to a foreground or a background or a figure here or a figure there. It's kind of a free-floating field. Um, I think when I interviewed Visible Cloaks a couple weeks ago, they they described ambient music as sort of a field that you can dip into or out of at will. And they discussed their own music as being more kind of composed, which I thought was interesting because I think of them also as very ambient but not in the way i don't know not traditionally ambient but um what would an ambient music that's not mellow and soft sound like
1: and would it serve the same purpose i mean right because i suppose that's the thing for me a lot of the ambient music from the the early 90s it was meant for sort of chill out rooms wasn't it you know and for sort of
0: well i mean chill out is even i mean the to me, there's the question of like what's ambient and what's chill out. I mean, to me, if you get a like a, a trip hop break beat in there, that's not no longer ambient, right? I know when we right, right. when we did the pitchfork list, uh, the ambient list, it was decided that basically no beats, you know. So I think we didn't allow Boards of Canada, for instance, because they have beats, and so by our definition, that was no longer ambient. Call it right. something else.
1: One thing right at the end of of your interview, you talk a little bit uh, about politics. Now, I don't know how I don't know how much we can talk about this because as as we mentioned there was a rather difficult Guardian interview published uh with Brian Eno uh, about a month before mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. one
0: something like that. And know, this is the interview that, that he right. was in the middle of uh when I was waiting to have my phone interview with him and my interview my original interview was postponed because he was so pissed off after this Guardian interview.
1: So how did you feel about bringing up Politics, because I mean, a lot of the for anyone that's not read it, a lot of the the problems from that interview was basically he made statements about about politics, about Brexit, about Trump that were then. um I mean, he wasn't misquoted or anything, but it's I think they're taken out of context by a lot of people. and He had to clear it up on. on yeah, and the face.
0: headline. I mean, I think I, I'm not I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but the way it was presented was especially because it was right up there in the headline was something like. Trump is a good thing and it was the, the idea was <laughs> like, Trump is an opportunity for change and what he was ultimately saying was that and I mean yes you could certainly say this is this is a statement that only a person of privilege can can say or all all manner of, of legitimate critiques um, but essentially what he was saying was the system is broken Hillary Clinton would have kind of been a band-aid on that system like Hillary Clinton would have kept the status quo for a long time And even though he supported Hillary Clinton and was against Trump Trump's win was hopefully an opportunity for finally the radical change that we all needed This is a thing that the Bernie bros had said and that and are sort of rightly critiqued for um, He my understanding is he wasn't saying yay Trump. (laughs) It was it was let's make the best of a bad situation Yeah So so anyway, so um, but I felt fine in bringing up the Trump thing because, A, he had he had responded with an open letter on Facebook, kind of claiming that his quotes had been taken out of contest, out of context. Uh, And he was also a co-signer on a letter to The Guardian on an open letter that was published in The Guardian with a bunch of other sort of public intellectuals condemning Trump. I don't remember if Brexit figured in there or not, but mainly it was a condemnation of Trump. So it's like he put himself out there; uh, it was obviously fair game. And I was curious to to hear him expand upon it a little
1: bit. Anything um, that didn't end up published in your interview that you can you can tell us about any little things? Well, I did learn that he's really interested in in um, artistic forgeries.
0: Uh, he kind of went on at length about uh, I'm not going to remember the name of the forger, but uh, yeah, a, a guy that that fo- could forge kind of any n- any number of the you know the the old masters or i think really any style and fooled all of the right. you know the greatest uh, art historians in the world and and eno was fascinated with this guy and i think i don't know to me that was interesting here's somebody who's much of his career is based on sort of upending ideas of authorship and you know you've got a, somebody making generative compositions which really takes the the emphasis off of the the artist and the individual creator um for him to be so fascinated by forgers, I think it makes perfect sense. And it, uh, yeah, it also made me wonder how how one might apply that to to music as well.
1: And um, last thing, did you get any idea of, of where he's going next, what he's doing next? The reason I ask is because probably the last Brian Eno album I spent a lot of time with was Someday World, which he did with Carl Hyde from Underworld. And it's, it's, it's like a sort of almost indie rock album is really really unexpected just to go from that to the next solo album which i think again was quite song based to this new ambient album it's fantastic i, I love that that spirit of just changing what just you do all from over album the to place. Al- yeah, yeah yeah
0: no i mean no idea we didn't we didn't talk about projects um although the fact that he had so much really intense beat oriented stuff on his computer really surprised me and who knows maybe maybe that's what he's he's going to be or maybe he'll do something in that vein sometime soon So Ben, it's been uh, we haven't done a podcast yet this year. You must have a big backlog of music you're excited about. What what are what are some recommendations for us this week?
1: Um, I have a folder of, of in my email that's podcast, and there's a lot of things in it. I've been I've been building it up. Um, the first one I want to talk about is um, a track that kind of ticks a lot of boxes for me, and it does something I really like, which is it has an idea that's almost like a novelty but doesn't overwhelm the track. It's not a novelty track. Um, it's by SMBD or Simbad. I don't know. I mean, he's normally known as Simbad. He's one of those producers, lo- does lots of Giles Peterson stuff. I think he did broken beats, that kind of thing. And um, But this is SMBD, I don't know how it's pronounced. And the track is called Ping Pong Love. And it starts off with the sound of two people playing table tennis. You know, the ball, like... And round that, they build a house beat. And I love that kind of thing. I listened to that and thought, <laughs> oh, this is, this is great. But then I thought, well, where do they go from that? Um, because if they just do that, that'll be quite nice. But um it's a bit unfulfilling. And actually the song they build around it is brilliant. It's this kind of soulfully, quite melancholy house song. And you keep on having this kind of ping pong beat in, in the background. It works really well. Like the way they interview they they introduce it, it's like this kind of feels a bit like a sort of Someone hitting a wood block or something like that, that kind of percussion that comes at weird moments and it really adds to it. Um, And uh, the song is absolutely lovely. It's from the Message 045 uh, EP.
0: Well, let's take a listen to it. Funny, because I feel like there have been a ton of tracks over the years with ping pong balls in them, but none of them are coming to mind right now.
1: The only one I could think of was on the Beastie Boys' *Paul's Boutique*. Uh, I can't remember which song, but there's definitely a song that has a ping pong. Yeah, that would make sense. That would make
0: sense. I'm sure if you Google, if you Googled it, you could probably find some. But um, wait, let's Google it. Songs with ping pong
1: balls. What do we get?
0: Songs with ping-pong sounds. It auto-completes, so clearly we're not the first <laughs> people to ask. Uh, Flying Lotus Table Tennis. Somebody thinks there's one on Panther Prince's Black Noise.
1: You're shaking your head.
0: Somebody says, neither Stereolabs nor Magnetic Man's songs of the same name do actually contain <laughs> ping-pong balls. So A <laughs> missed opportunity. Down. Somebody Bye-bye. thinks Apex Twin, and Aphex Twin has one, and it feels like that to me, like... But maybe I'm confused with Bucephalus bouncing ball. Yes, which is I mean, something he, that sounds like it, but I don't think... But he uses that kind of energy. I, I think it would be interesting to use to do like an audio to MIDI um, conversion and take like a ping pong ball recording and then, gener- and then generate MIDI that you could trigger other sounds with. So then you get that that bouncing action, but you take away the the sound. I'm not sure how I feel about the, the Simbad. Like, it's clever. I get it. But I almost feel like it would be better for for me if it were more restricted to, if, like, if it kept its focus on the ping pong ball. You know what I mean? Like, because it's so representative that then then you, you have this otherwise quite kind of moody and sentimental house track. Right. And then the ping pong ball sound kind of, you, you're reminded, oh, I'm listening to a ping pong ball. And it becomes, I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of, pulled 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 back and forth between two two different modes a little bit
1: i see I, I don't get that i get that for me the ping pong ball becomes such a part of the song that it's just like another bit of percussion it's like yeah. you don't think oh i'm listening to a hi hat when you listen to a hi hat right it's, true true um for me also it's very barcelona because what is more barcelona than ping pong
0: uh, that's a good point yeah all the parks or many of the parks have ping pong tables and
1: yeah and what's your recommendation
0: i'm really into this new song by the juan mclean uh juan mclean and nancy wang called can you ever really know somebody on dfa it's super simple it's very um late 80s early 90s kind of pumping house um detroit house vibes but it really works for me i think nancy wang sounds great i think she sounds as good as she's ever sounded and this the production of it is really kind of raw and unvarnished synthesizers pushed hot in the mix not a lot of effects or i don't know it's just like kind of rough and a little bit crude and uh and i like it a bunch it reminds me in some ways of um round two which was basic channel guys in their sort of deep house guys uh, they had a, a song called new day and new day is much softer and subtler and more soulful than this but there's something that that uh, that that feels similar to me
1: I'm a f- Firmly of the opinion that no song can't be improved by uh, having Nancy Wang added to it. I love her. I, I love everything. I think the best bits of LCD Sound System and the one McLean, where her voice is to the fore, she just sounds. It's one of those voices that sounds great, and she does these kind mm-hmm. of often does these really simple things that I really like.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think this song works so well because it's very simple, again unvarnished, um, but the balance is great. Um, and and they've done a really excellent remix as well by Ambivalent. Um, Kevin McHugh in his L.A. 4A guys, um, and it's really—it's this really nasty acid track that sounds pretty different from the original. But then he's kept the Nancy Wang vocal over the top, and it's—it's it's really good. I feel like—I um, mean, I barely set foot in nightclubs anymore, so I'll never know. But I feel like it could end up being a big uh, big track this year.
1: Shall we have a listen? Let's listen.
0: So we've got one more set of recommendations uh, on today's show, and this is actually going to be kicking off a new, um, possibly semi-recurring feature, <laughs> uh, henceforth to be known as Norwich versus Portland.
1: Yeah, this is getting personal. Yeah, yeah. Um, shall we explain why on earth we're So I, um, I, I, although I was born in, in Scotland, um, I lived, shall we say my formative years in, in Norwich, England, and my parents... Still live there, so obviously I listen out for things coming from Norwich. And uh, you and, live- and I'm from Portland. So, and which one's better, musically? That's, that's the big question. That's what we're going to find out on today's show. So, my uh, opening shot in this um, is not just from Norwich, although I know that's a big thing. It's actually inspired by the same road on which I used to live, and on which my parents still do live which is Earlham Road. So you're getting royalties for this song then? I should be, yeah. <laughs> um, it was one of those things that when, I, I mean, Luke Abbott, it's by Luke Abbott. Um, he's from Norwich. He's done, uh, he did an album previously called Holcomb Drones, which uh, is about my favourite beach in the entire world, Holcomb, which is ah. in uh, Norfolk.
0: I always wondered what that meant.
1: Lovely beach. Absolutely lovely. Um, and when the the press release um, popped through about his new um project, and it was called Earlham Mystics. I thought it couldn't be. Could it? <laughs> sure, surely that, that couldn't have anything to do. And uh, yet, yeah, it turns out it is actually inspired. Well, let me read you what he said. So you recognise the name then? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a road near my house, my new house called Earlham Road. I dreamt one night after <laughs> I moved there that I visited a shop on that road, which was full of these colourful glowing eggs, about the size of the dragon eggs in Game of Thrones, glowing with blue and white light, the shop was called Earlham Mystics. <laughs> and there we go.
0: So you saw you saw Earlham Mystics and you said, wait, Earlham Road, that's in...
1: Well, you knew he was from Norwich,
0: so I guess yeah. that would make sense. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and um, so obviously yeah. fired up uh, the link to listen to it on SoundCloud, um, hoping very much that it would be good. Because, I mean, I really like Luke Crab. I'm mm. a big fan. He's one of my favorite um, of the border community lot, although this isn't on border community. Um, and it's great. He can be pretty abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the Weising uh, album that he did. Weising Forest was very good, but very sort of abstract. This is apparently his attempt at making a pop track. Um, I, and I think he said, "Me trying to make a pop track, but not really being able to do it properly," <laughs> which is which is <laughs> a great enough. yeah. <laughs> I, I love that kind of approach. And it, so it's got the sort of wobbly synths and weird voices that you get. Um, from a lot of that border community kind of work, quite melodic. And underpinning it is this really simple bass line, which I think is maybe what he meant by the trying to make a pop trap, because the bass mm. line is really, it's like three notes or something like that, you know, and it's very, it's a very effective mix because you have um, the weirdness, but there's something keeping it there. You could, you could dance to it. I haven't, but I'm sure, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you could. Next time I go back to Earlham Road, I will definitely be dancing to it.
0: Well, let's uh, let's take close your eyes, picture yourself on Earlham Road in Norwich, and let's take a listen to Earl, uh, Earlham Mystics'
1: "Stolen Hearts." that was Norwich a fine on to city Portland,
0: uh, a fine city fine city uh on to Portland Oregon
1: so what have we got uh
0: so this is uh, uh an artist named Strategy Paul Dickow uh I've known full disclosure I've known Paul <laughs> uh for many many years um even though I I mean I left Portland in like 1989 and have never lived there since I go back not infrequently and um I I I've, I've DJed Paul. Paul used to, and he may still have uh, a a monthly party. I think at a video game arcade in Portland, Oregon. Nice. Um, I've played for that a couple times. Um, Paul, I remember like when I was spending a lot of time in Portland around 2005 or 2007. He and some other people were were throwing a bunch of events, kind of with with this free Cascadia theme and. It was kind of tongue in cheek, but the idea was basically secession from the United States. Um, which hey man, let's <laughs> let's do it. And they <laughs> and the, the flyers for these parties were basically an artist's rendering of what a Cascadian money might look like. And so they were flyers, but they were like dollar bills for and they were beautiful. They had like typically Northwest kind of flora and fauna on them. So like maybe a gooey duck, for instance, which is a particular kind of weird clam that we have. Um, wow. And like certain kind, you know, certain kinds of like birds of prey and whatever. And yeah, they were fantastic. And so Paul comes from this um, really interesting, very underground DIY scene in the Pacific Northwest. He's been making music for decades. Uh, all of it's great. And his latest one, an album called The Infinity File on the Geographic North label, is part of his tape loop series. And he has this um, method of using tape loops, which is actually taking cast off cassettes, cassettes he finds on the streets, cassettes that his friends give him, breaking them open. You can cut the tape, kind of take it off the spindle, cut it, like tape it with with sticky tape, and create a tape loop. And then he will run like four of these in parallel through a mixing desk and through a bunch of different effects like, um, you know, delays, reverbs, filters. And um, so sort of the way you would use Ableton Live, he's just using, um, you know, with like four channels there, he's just doing it on on actual tapes, sometimes utilizing recordings that were already on the tapes, sometimes re-recording his own sounds on the tapes. And so this album comes out of that series. He's using the same methods, um, although I think he's also doing other things on top. I mean, this this song, uh, Occurrence at the Triple Door, has this almost kind of like Flying Lotus-style bass line on it, kind of a funk bass, synth bass, that I assume has to be um, kind of played on a synth on top. I don't think that's part of the, the tape loops, but like everything he does it's 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 it starts off really ambient and shimmering and enveloping and then it kind of turns into a song the longer it goes and um yeah i think i think it's fantastic
1: So what's better, Portland or Norwich? Well, Listeners? Portland, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but just just in case it helps to settle it, can I just point you to Beth Orton, Kathy mm-hmm. Dennis, Easy Rollers, Sigala, and uh, Europe's oldest uh, covered market. Sigala? He recently had a number one track in the UK with uh, Easy Love, which sampled... Uh, Jackson Five.
0: Is that like the Catalan word cigala, for like um the, what are those the, the prawn those um, amazing shellfish? Cigala? Oh no, it's with an
1: S. It's with an ah, S. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Um,
0: yeah, but let's see. Portland's got Poison Idea, um, Elliot Smith, um, uh, sleater Kenny, of course. Um, micro
1: How old is your uh, covered market? Like crazy old dude, <laughs> so old, <laughs> I don't believe it. no, not for a, a At second. least
0: eighteen forty nine or <laughs> something like that.
1: Unbelievable. I think the Norwich one is from the twelfth century.
0: We don't have a covered market because
1: yeah, <laughs> you have clams. We
0: we have clams. We have so many clams. We when I was a kid, we used to, well. Yeah, anyway, let <laughs> get into that
1: <laughs> clams. <laughs> exactly. So, which is better? Well, you you decide, listener. we we this is going to run and run. What's our email? Uh, Line noise at gmail dot com, or uh, you can get us on Twitter at linenoisepod, if you fancy. Facebook, we're there. Uh, so yeah, tell us which
0: is better, Norwich or Nor? Sorry, Nor- <laughs> Norwich, <laughs> Norwich, Norwich or Portland. Tell us Norwich is better, and um, yeah, we'll and and we'll try and come up with more. Uh, more Sister City uh, comparisons like this in the coming weeks. Lovely. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you.